0: The Legal Lives Podcast Series, brought to
1: you by Fisher-Jones Greenwood Solicitors.
0: Hello and welcome to the Legal Lives Podcast Series, brought to you by Fisher-Jones Greenwood Solicitors. I'm Jonathan Hart. During this podcast series, we hear from some of the people behind the real cases that Fisher-Jones Greenwood has taken over the years. We speak to both clients and solicitors, who'll shine a light on a variety of relevant and sometimes very sensitive topics. In this episode, we focus on refugees and asylum law. During this podcast, you'll hear one person's story, a refugee. It's an incredible journey, starting in one of the most war-torn countries in the world and ending here in the UK. How did our guest get here? What dangers did he face? And what was the legal process of seeking asylum? To protect the privacy of our guest, we're not going to refer to him by his real name. Before I introduce both our guests, it's worth saying that you may be disturbed by what you're about to hear. It's a harrowing story, but a story worth telling. In the winter of 2004, after escaping Afghanistan, one of the most war-torn countries in the world, Majid was heading for the United Kingdom. His mission? To find refuge and start a new life. This is Majid's story. Majid, thank you very much for joining us today at the offices of Fisher-Jones Greenwood.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. and It has been a pleasure being here.
0: And with Majid in our makeshift studio is Ashley Campbell, a senior immigration advisor and partner for Fisher-Jones Greenwood. Hi, Ashley.
1: Hi, nice to be here.
0: Majid, first of all, I can't begin to comprehend what you've been through. But please tell us about your life in Afghanistan before the war.
2: So before the war, uh, we were a very happy family. Uh, I had my father and siblings. Uh, Financially, we were better off. Um, There was no issue at all. We were living a normal family life. Uh, I was going to school, spending my time with my family. My father would take us uh, uh, outside during the weekends. Uh, We spent a very happy life as a family.
0: And when did the problems really begin?
2: The problem uh, began in uh, 2001 because the Taliban, they wanted uh, my father to sponsor them, uh, to support them financially. Uh, My father was not happy with the cause and that uh, resulted in uh, getting issues for us. And then, of course, the war began. At what point did you decide you had to leave your country? At the point, you know, where the Taliban were looking for my father and uh, they were, of course, my father was also scared, you know, that they may uh, kill me as well. So it was, I think, in 2003. And tell us
0: about your journey to get to the UK. How did it start?
2: So the journey started from uh, Kabul uh, because we were, uh, my uncle was living in Kabul. We were hiding uh, in the basement as a family for a month. The agent picked me up from Kabul in a car and we drove to uh, Torham which is a border uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, from Torham I, I had to illegally cross the border to enter Pakistan. I was in Pakistan for uh, some time, and then the agent had to arrange uh, me to leave uh, Pakistan. And this is you alone
0: as an unaccompanied minor?
2: That's correct. I was there, but uh, there were two other people as well and two other minors. Uh, they also wanted to leave Afghanistan. They also had some issues, but of course different issues than I had. It sounds like a very dangerous journey. Tell us about some of the
0: things that happened to you on the way.
2: It was dangerous because uh, the Taliban, uh, they were uh, controlling most of the Afghanistan. Uh, so we were scared, you know, that they may stop us uh, in the middle of the journey, and especially my identity. If they find out, you know, then I will be in danger. For that reason, I didn't uh, bring any ID with me. Uh, which has affected me, of course, when I came to the UK because I had to fight five years with authority you know, to uh, get me the right age. So it was dangerous uh, throughout, from uh, uh, Kabul uh, to Pakistan. Uh, it was dangerous because Taliban were stopping cars on the way. Uh, they were asking questions, where are you going? Who are these children? Uh, the agent would just say that they are my, my sons because it was three of us. So anything could have happened, you know. They could have asked, you know, that okay, show me the ID or Taskira, you know, which we all, all mostly refer to. Or they could have just detained me, you know, and find out the real identity, yeah. A lot of people in the United Kingdom would
0: wonder how it was possible you were even allowed to get on a plane. How did that work?
2: So there's a connection, you know. First of all, you know, the passport that was given to me, at that passport, my age was 20 years old. So I was 12, but the passport uh, was photocopied and my age was uh, 20 years old, the passport. So that's the reason, you know, when I was at Istanbul, you know, they they became a bit suspicious, you know, that you're so young, you know, and how come you have this passport with you? They stopped me, the authority, they questioned me. And uh, I was prepared by the agent, you know, what I need to say if they, they approach me. Uh, So we knew uh, all about London, you know, because the agent gave us questions, you know, what you have to do if they ask you what sort of tubes are there in underground tube, you have to say those, uh, these answers, how many uh, villages, uh, the closest area that I live with. So I was prepared with those questions. So when they asked me those questions, my English was not that bad. I managed to uh, get away with it. But the situation was, you know, when I came to the airport, the agent told me that I need to get rid of the passport. So I had to look for a toilet. I had to uh, basically get rid of the passport and then uh, need to ask someone, you know, that I'm here to seek asylum. So you have to get rid of the passport in order
0: to gain entry. Yes. This sounds like a film for someone like me, an incredible uh, journey. I mean, how did you manage to keep so cool, I mean, you're 12 years of age. Mm. In some respects, is that an advantage that you were so young?
2: I think, you know, because the, my, my parents, you know, they treat me so well, you know. The war began, you know, they were so stressed, you know, uh, because of the situation. So I think that three years, the difficult time that I had, you know, that made me very mature. So although I was 12 years old, you know, but I was very mature uh, mentally because I saw the war, you know, I've seen people uh, dying you know in front of my eyes, I remember when I was leaving the house, uh, we were trying to move from that house to another house, uh, to my uncle's house, who is a very successful businessman in Afghanistan. So we had to travel there. And I saw the Taliban, you know, they had to uh, stop people and we had to hide our identity. We had to risk our life, to be honest, to make it to my uncle's house, you know, so that we can hide in the basement. Uh, So we were hiding in the basement for two months or three months. Uh, but this is just my journey, you know, because of the money financially, we were okay. So I made it uh, the journey. It was a bit easier for me. But other people, as working with them as an interpreter, they had a terrible journey. They take lorry, they get tortured by the the agent. Uh, they work for uh, for years as well. Sometimes they have no money as well. So uh, the agent misused them. You know, for many reasons uh, for example they have no money so they have to work you know they have to return the money back to the agent so one way or the other way they are misused do you think it's got harder
0: to gain asylum into the united
2: kingdom from when you did it in 2001 i think it's much harder because in 2001 i remember when i came uh, they just asked me you know where are you from and i just told them that i'm from afghanistan uh, i could speak pashto and i could also speak dari they asked me which language would you prefer, but uh, I was told by the agent that it's better that you speak in Dari, because that would uh, shows that you're from Afghanistan. So they brought a Farsi uh, interpreter, and I just spoke with her in Dari. Uh, they just gave me six months' document at the airport. Uh, it was so easy, and then uh, I had a cousin. I just called my cousin. He came to the airport, although I was sleeping in the airport for two nights, uh, because I told them that I'm uh, 12 years old, but at that time I had no proof. Uh, so they assumed, you know, that I'm older, you know, I'm older than 12. So they they didn't give me to the social worker. And I had to struggle for five years, you know, to fight my age case, you know, with the solicitors, uh, with the social worker as well. So technically, you know, uh, they gave me, as eight, uh, they considered me as 18 years old. They gave me a national insurance number. I was working, but in reality I was 12 years old. So I didn't benefit anything you know, from the social worker. So the five years that you were here,
0: yeah. it
2: must have been a
0: stressful, difficult time. How did you cope and were you still alone as far as your family was concerned? Or you, you mentioned that you had some family contacts in the United Kingdom.
2: Uh, yeah, I had a cousin, uh, but my cousin, uh, he had his own issues because he had to care for his brothers, he wanted to arrange uh, for his brother to leave Afghanistan. Uh, My issue was not just uh, I was by myself, you know, but my big issue was that what is going to happen to my family. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, my father, he was killed. And uh, my sisters, uh, they were, uh, I had no contact with them. And then uh, when I went back to Afghanistan in 2010, I managed to find my brother. And then I sponsored him in the UK uh, later on uh, under the immigration rules, uh, which uh, made me eligible apply for him Uh, but the rest of the family uh, I don't know where they are Uh, my mother uh, my siblings so we don't know you've not managed to get any idea of any contact what do you think has happened to them I believe you know that I have been looking for them uh, even uh, when I traveled to Afghanistan I think uh, some people say you know that they uh, were killed along with my uh, father But there is no evidence. My family members, like my distant family members, they couldn't get hold of their bodies. They got hold of my father's body, but not uh, my siblings and my mother. So I still dream, you know, that one day I will see them. But uh, so far, there hasn't been anything. And you were telling me before you've been back to Afghanistan twice. I've been to Afghanistan twice, yeah.
0: What is the situation like there now compared with way back in 2001 and when the first time you returned?
2: I think, you know, that is almost same, to be honest. Uh, Of course, before the war, as I explained, you know, uh, things were very stable. But now, you know, like, if you go to Afghanistan, uh, although there is not much, you know, that people, they don't talk about it. There are lots of Talibans uh, in the area. Life is getting difficult for people. You cannot just go outside during the night because you cannot trust anyone. Uh, the villagers, most of them, you know, they have been brainwashed. Uh, some of them, they are supporter of the Taliban because uh, they cannot say anything against the Taliban. If they do, they will be killed. Uh, so it, it is very difficult to trust anyone, to be honest. It's an
0: amazing story. 12-year-old child manages to escape a war-torn country and get to the UK. Ashley, you support refugees with their home office applications can you explain the process to our listeners
1: okay Uh, the process um, is a very lengthy process firstly when you arrive you have what is called a screening interview so that's where you register your asylum application then what you have to submit to the Home Office is the story about your case. And uh, when you're explaining that story, in order to be recognised as a refugee, you then have to show that you fall within the legal definition of a refugee. So you have to show that you will suffer persecution in your own country and that the persecution is from the government or an organisation the government can't control and that you will be persecuted either because of your race, your religion, your ethnic origin or nationality, your political opinion or perceived political opinion, or because you're a member of a particular social group. And um, being a member of a particular social group has been taken to be, for example, your sexuality or you're a woman. Um, Once you've told your story to the Home Office and submitted it in a statement form, you are then called for an interview. That interview can last three to four hours where you ask questions about your statement to see that you are consistent and telling the same thing in the same way that you did in your witness statement. You then get a decision. If you are accepted as a refugee, you get five years' refugee status. If you don't fall within the legal definition of a refugee, but they still accept your life is going to be in danger, you can be given humanitarian protection. So your rights under Articles 2 or 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights will be breached. If the Home Office do not believe you at all, your case is refused and you have to go through the appeal process. And the appeal process is through the immigration tribunals and it's a very lengthy process. You can appeal to the first tier tribunal, you can appeal to the upper tribunal, But that is a um, very complicated process. You need legal representation to do it. Um, I would say that it's very daunting, especially for children and unaccompanied minors who have to then go and give evidence in court. This is something they may not even understand. They've never been to a court before. They don't know what a court is. They certainly don't know what an independent judge is. And throughout this process, you've got to bear in mind that all of my clients Are having to do everything through an interpreter. And you have interpreters at all stages, and you have different interpreters. So one interpreter may not interpret something in the same way as another interpreter. And this is where consistency comes into it. The courts don't like anybody blaming the interpreter, and we certainly don't like to blame the interpreter, but you've got to understand it's a matter of interpretation. So The Home Office do pick up on every single word somebody says and uh, that's sometimes used against them.
0: We've heard Majid's story. Mm -hmm. Is it harder now to get asylum in the United Kingdom than when Majid first came here when he was 12, way back in 2001?
1: Um, The legal definition of a refugee has always been the same. What happens over the years is that different countries, their situation changes politically So you tend to have waves of refugees from unstable countries as time passes. So the courts in this country and the Home Office issue country guidance. So at the time, over the years, uh, the country guidance for each case changes. So initially it was quite easy for Afghan nationals to get asylum. At one stage, all Iraqis, when Saddam Hussein was still in power, would get asylum. But as soon as something happens in that country, the Home Office issues new country guidance, so it becomes harder for nationals of that country. So the situation, um, like we've just heard, may not have changed in Afghanistan since 2001, but the Home Office may issue guidance saying the Taliban are now under control or not in control over the whole of Afghanistan. Therefore, you can go back to Kabul. Whereas practically, that's not the situation.
0: You've dealt with hundreds of applications for asylum and part of your role is to understand the dangers of clients returning to their country. Can you give us some examples of this?
1: It depends which countries people come from. Their stories change. So, for example, at the moment I deal with a lot of Eritrean minors. And they are all fleeing Eritrea because in Eritrea you have compulsory military service that is indefinite. And uh, once you are taken into military service, you can never leave. You are sometimes forced to commit human rights abuses. So that's why all the people from Eritrea are leaving. If you look at another country, um, for example, Iran, I've dealt with lots of cases where Iranian nationals have, for example, changed their... Religion, they no longer wish to practice Islam. Or their sexuality, they they come out as as gay, they are persecuted there. So that's the reason they are claiming asylum there. So it very much depends on which country the person comes from.
0: Imagine if I can come back to you, you've now been granted refugee status some time ago, actually, isn't it, really? Yeah. Because you uh, came here in 2001, it took you five years to get the status. So it's been quite some time. Do you feel more... British than Afghani?
2: I think so, because I have spent majority of my life here. I only been to Afghanistan twice, uh, or only for a month. So I think uh, more British. And tell us about your life
0: now. Tell us about the work that you do, if you can, and the people that you know and family and so on.
2: Uh, sure. Uh, well, what I'm doing at the moment, I'm running a, a translation agency with uh, two uh, other people. Uh, It's my brother and then another colleague, you know, that's helping us. And we have a lot of interpreters, qualified interpreters. Uh, We provide services to court, uh, to solicitors, to social workers. Things have changed, but of course, I haven't spent a lot of time with the family. So the uh, family factor is still missing. Uh, So things will change for better, you know. But then I think family life is very important, I guess. Uh, It's one of the important things that you will miss forever. Uh, so that's the factor uh, which only affects me. But other than that, you know, I have been doing well. Uh, I have a lot of friends, a lot of family members who have uh, came to the UK. Uh, they are distant relative, but they are living in the UK. Uh, so we contribute to the charities. We have some charities which contribute uh, in Afghanistan. We did uh, some sort of activities last Saturday in Afghanistan where uh, we had a campaign, you know, helping uh, the poor people Uh, for winter, you know, clothes and and food as well. It sounds, from what you said, a very bittersweet
0: journey you've been on. Obviously, you left the majority of your close family in Afghanistan and many of whom you've never seen since. But you are a success story. I mean, would you agree with that, Ashley? What what he's done with his life is nothing short of amazing.
1: It is amazing. And I think a lot of people that come here, because they've been through such adversity, they want to make the best of their lives. And I've seen, just to go back to the asylum process, if you do end up getting asylum, you get it for a period of five years. And then after that, you can apply for indefinite leave to remain, which is what you can stay here indefinitely. And once you've had that for one year, then you can become a British citizen. So in some ways, people's lives are a little bit still on hold until they get to that final stage of having indefinite leave to remain. But I've seen with uh, my clients over the years, a lot of them have made such a success of themselves because they've had to overcome through such adversity. That's all they want to do. They want to take advantage of what has now been offered to them.
0: So Ashley, for anyone listening to this podcast who is going through the Home Office application process at the moment, what would your advice be?
1: Well, firstly, I would say as difficult as it is, you've got to be patient. Um, The Home Office have hundreds and thousands of applications that they deal with. Everybody wants their case dealt with tomorrow, but every other asylum seeker is uh, in the same boat effectively. Um, And even if you're going through the court process, again, it does take a long time. And the second thing I'd say is try and get a good solicitor or social worker that can explain the process to you. Because a lot of people that come here They come from countries that don't have the same sort of legal system. And so as somebody who's never seen a formal legal process like that, it's very hard to understand. And the way that the Home Office look at cases is, are you being consistent in what you're telling as your journey and in terms of what has happened to you? And people don't understand that the way the Home Office look at it because they cannot go back to any country to check what you're saying is true is by asking you the same questions and to see that you give the same answers all the time. So think about what you say and understand that virtually every single word you say is important. Make sure you, you, as difficult as it may be, you say everything that has happened to you and is likely to happen to you on return. Do you want to add to that, Martin?
2: Yeah, adding to that as well, you know, because when you leave the country, the agent, you know, like you will have a real story, but the agent will tell you that uh, you should tell this, you should tell that, yeah. So most of the people, they listen to the agent, you know, they forget about their real story which has happened to them. Uh, They follow the agent's story and that's why when they go to the interview, uh, the credibility issue uh, takes place. So I think uh, the best thing would be, you know, just to stick with the story and these are the real story which has happened to people Nobody likes to leave their country, right? If you are happy your, uh, if your country is stable, you know, you would uh, live with them in that country, you will live with your family. Uh, but people are leave, uh, leaving their country for reasons, mm-hmm. and most of the reasons are because they have uh, been a victim of a war. And especially uh, the people who made it here and who have been living here for 10 or 12 years, uh, or m- maybe when they are, became British citizens, they, ha- they are very successful now. Uh, they are contributing a lot uh, to the economy. I mean, we have uh, like 2,000 family. Uh, all of them, they have businesses. They have not one businesses. They have like few businesses. Uh, so that means that they bring uh, money back to the country. They contribute back to the country. So I think uh, these asylums should also be welcomed. And uh, they should uh, be welcomed in a way that it's their home. Uh, that will make a, bit, a big difference, I guess, uh, because I think these people, you know, most of them, they are hardworking people. Yeah, they were very successful in their country, but because of the war, you know, they, they had to leave. Uh, and as they are here, uh, they are contributing, and I have seen that in my eyes, and you know, especially uh, the people that I know, that I integrate with, uh, they have done so well. They are contributing it uh, to the economy in a positive way. Uh, they are uh, contributing to charity events. Uh, we have a charity where uh, we gather every weekend on King Cross Station and we offer food to homeless people. This is amazing because it's lots of people come there. Uh, they are homeless and they have no food. Uh, so we help them. So I think uh, we are contributing back uh, to the country and at the same time we also appreciate, you know, for this country uh, giving us the opportunity of seeking asylum or giving us the opportunity to become British citizens. So this has to be appreciated, I think.
1: I I agree with with, with what's been said because nobody would put themselves through what these people have to go through to get here. Because a lot of the cases that I deal with, sometimes the journey is in some ways more harrowing than actually what has happened to them in their own country. We've all heard the story of the Vietnamese people that died recently in the lorry. A lot of the Vietnamese girls that I deal with and boys are trafficked here. They've been made to work along the way. They've been forced into prostitution. They've been forced into drug cultivation. And nobody would put themselves through that if there wasn't a reason that they left. And I think that's why people should not stigmatise asylum seekers um, and not judge them because they do have something to contribute to this society. They've all been through something in their past, but they all want to make something of their future because they would not have put their lives at risk along the journey if there wasn't a reason for it.
0: Asylum is a, a controversial and sensitive subject. Are you hoping, Majid, that your experience, your story might change people's perceptions anyone who's listening to this who might have hopefully had their minds changed by the story that you've been telling
2: yeah i think so because uh, i can be uh, as a good example because i came here as a young boy and uh, i finished my education here uh, now since i have a business uh, we contribute back to the economy in one way or the other way uh, and not just that, you know, we are also contributing uh, to ch- in charity events. Uh, we want to do best for the country uh, if someone says something bad about this country, you know, uh, we just get irritated, you know, how come you say this, right? So we feel that it's our home. This country has given us the opportunity and we have to uh, give back to the country. Especially if you spend your uh, teenager life here, like I have been here for almost now 16 or 15 years. Uh, So I feel this is my home. Majid, thank you very much indeed for telling us your story. Thank you very much uh, and thanks for the opportunity for speaking with you about my experience. No problem at all. And thank
0: you, Ashley, for sharing your experience as well.
1: Thank you. And I'm just happy to do it because I want people to realise that everybody who comes here and claims asylum has their own story to tell. We should listen to that story before we judge.
0: Thank you both. Very much indeed. And our thanks once again, both to Majid and Ashley. For more information on legal aid and immigration, please visit fjg.co.uk and go to the Immigration and Visa section. We hope you found this Legal Lives podcast compelling. Don't forget to subscribe to hear more in the series and feel free to rate, review and sign up. In our next episode... We focus on domestic abuse. We'll hear from someone who's experienced it and the solicitor who represented her. Join us again. Goodbye.